In the last half of the 10th century, a Viking warrior of some renown, Eric Thorvaldsen, he ran into a bit of trouble. His father before him, Thorvald Asvaldsen, also did the same thing. He was exiled from Norway for manslaughter. Thorvald sailed west and became one of the most powerful Vikings to settle in Iceland. Eric was approximately 30 years of age. He was also banished, but this time from the land where he had been raised, Iceland, because he killed Eilof Sauer, a well-respected landowner in the community. Eric would have more than likely been executed, but he he pled during to the other Viking leaders that he had a reason for killing Eyolf. See, Eyolf had killed all of Eric's thralls, that is, slaves, after they had somehow or another caused a landslide on Eyolf's land. At the assembly, which the Icelanders call the thing, at Hokdar, it was agreed that Eric had a legitimate beef with Eyolf, but you still don't kill a landowner, fellow landowner, if he killed your slaves. Eh, we got to punish this guy. And so the assembly decided that Eric Thorvaldsen was sentenced to be exiled from Iceland for three years. So Eric Thorvaldsen sailed west. He had heard tales from other Vikings that there were lands for the taking just beyond the horizon. It was a bit farther than that, but yes, there were lands over there. So in 982, Eric sailed to this mysterious land, and after rounding its most southern tip, he sailed up the west coast and found a place that had good anchorage for his ships, and it seemed to be a very similar climate to Iceland and would be ice-free for most of the year. Now, over his three years in exile, Eric explored the land, and when his sentence was over, he returned to Iceland to attempt to recruit others to join him at his new colony. Eric gave out his sales pitch, especially to those farmers in Iceland that were living on marginal grounds and had no chance of expanding onto new land. He knew the success of his colony would be entirely dependent on getting enough settlers. He also knew that if he gave his colony a really cool, attractive name, it would help him in the recruitment process. So, rather than calling this new land Polar Bear Land or Inuit Land, both of which were inhabitants of this land, he decided to give it a name he knew would be attractive to Icelandic Viking farmers. He called it Greenland. Some of you already know what I'm going to tell you next. Eric Thordvaldsen is better known to history by another name, Eric the Red, and he had a son, Leif the Lucky. Leif Erikson. Now, while Leif wasn't banished from Iceland or Norway, he did sail west and he discovered another land, Vinland. He also gave this a name for marketing reasons. Vinland's where grapes grow, it's where wine could be made. And he created the first known European settlement in North America at Laon's Meadow, Newfoundland, Canada. And none of that would have happened had not Thorvald, the father, and Eric, the son, both been exiled from their homelands. This is episode 15. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica. And hello, everybody, coming to you from 
Porsche Shavin Lounge on the Viking Sea on our Viking Ocean Cruise. We're somewhere in the North Sea, and I don't know when this is going to get up on the feeds because, well, you can probably imagine, Wi-Fi and cell service in the middle of the North Sea is not very good. So this is going to be a truncated program today because, uh, well, I'm on holidays, but I still wanted to get a show out to you, and so I went up to uh, Des Moines back in July, and I met R.J. Tersey, the founder and owner of Exile Brewing, and R.J. has an incredible story about exiles, especially his family, and how they got to America, and it really ties into the creation of his brewery. So, without any further ado, I say, uh, Skull, health to you from the North Sea, and here it is your interview of the week. Hello everybody, I'm coming to you from downtown Des Moines, Iowa, and we're at Exile Brewing this week, and I'm sitting here with founder and owner R.J. Tersey. Thanks, R.J., for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And I was quite surprised... When I here, I came in early and had a burger. It's delicious, by the way. Good, good. Yeah. Uh, anytime you can put three cheeses on on a burger, I'm I'm all for that. And the pretzel bun is key <laughs> oh, and the too. Oh, pre- the pretzel bun was great. Yeah. But I'm drinking a collaboration that you did here with one of my friends in St. Louis. You did this with Four Hands Brewing. That's right. Yep. For Martin Beer Week. I sent Martin uh, an email with nice. photograph of. I said, "Hey, dude! <laughs> I said, dude, I'm drinking your beer in Iowa." So, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it is. He I doesn't mean, hear that very often since no. they're not distributed up here. But you know, and that's the thing about the craft beer community is that there are a lot of connections between different yeah, breweries. For sure, people helping each other out. Yep, they have definitely been helpful for us. Well, let's get let's go to the beginning. Okay. How did you get into craft beer? Yes, so we were talking earlier. I grew up in hospitality, and this is, you know, I, I tell everybody this story because it's the truth. It's um, a, and it's a good story. Yeah, yeah so I, I grew up in hospitality, and I, you know, looking at how much my dad worked, he, he absolutely worked his butt off. I was like, well, that's probably not what I want to do uh, to make a living. There's got to be an easier way. And uh, so I majored in finance in, in college. And then realized pretty shortly after that that finance was also not the way that I wanted to make a living. So I went over to Italy and worked at a winery with some family over there. Oh, cool. And uh, yeah, it was and it was a great experience. Uh, very, very challenging work. Very hard work. Long hours. Difficult to communicate with the coworkers. But just the the passion from from the workers and from my family that worked there. Mm-hmm. And the, the process and the final product, I really connected to it. I'm going to stop you. Here's my extent sure. of Italian. Okay. Par- Excuse me. Mio uh-huh. Italiano e molto male. Parli inglese, por favor. Right, yeah. And most don't. <laughs> most don't speak Italian. So, yeah, especially in, or I'm sorry, most don't speak English. But right. even in southern Italy, there's a very, very distinct dialect in southern Italy. So mm-hmm. I had been studying my Italian and then I got down there and it was like, what the hell is this language that everybody is speaking right, right now? It's not even Italian. So I loved Italy. Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 
Had you been there before you went to work for the winery? Yeah, I'd been there. So the first time I went over there was with my dad and my grandpa when I was in middle school because my my grandpa's from Italy. And then uh, I I studied in Florence for a semester in college. Yeah, and then I went back after that to to work with family over there in Calabria. Where, where was the uh, winery? Calabria. Calabria. Yeah, now, I'm Italy. sorry, my it, my Italian geography is poor. Where is that? In the toe of the boot. In the toe of the boot. Yeah, okay. The the well, boot. everybody knows that. Exactly. So you're over in the winery. You're working there. You come back to the states, yeah. and I I started working in wine when I got back to the states just because I I loved the process, everything around it, the product, you know, the service of it. Um, it, it was just all really intriguing and, and I wanted to learn more about it so I got my my sommelier certification my level two sommelier certification and I was working at my dad's restaurant uh Terzi's Latin King and you know so we we would we were spending hours together every day my dad and I were at the time and it was great working with him and as as we were doing that you know like in the evenings not a whole lot would be going on and I remember I was reading an article about beer and how much craft beer was growing around the country. It was like, man, I kind of wish I had worked at a brewery instead of a winery because, like, I could actually do that here in Iowa. Like, right. I could actually make, you know, open up a winery here, or I'm sorry, a brewery here in Iowa. Right. Like a winery, there are wineries in Iowa, but tough shake. You know, we've yeah. got, there's a lot of challenges working against the, wineries. The, the weather here is exactly. not what you would call exactly wine weather. No, the Tawar is, is very challenging yeah. for, for winemakers in Iowa, but you don't deal with those challenges in beer. So I was like, man, I wonder, you know, could I learn how to do this? And at the same time, my dad must have been reading some of the same articles that I was because he was like, hey, what do you think about, you know, opening up a craft brewery? It's, it's happening right now. And you know, you have some knowledge from the winery, and, and we have the the hospitality knowledge from the restaurant here. And sure. we can we can do it. You know, we have the the skills to do it. So little did we know we did not have the skills at the time to do it. But you you learn them, you know, and you just you just dig in. The name Exile. Yeah. That, Tell us the story behind that. That's your grandfather. Yeah. Well, it's it's a tribute to my grandfather. Right. right? So I said. You know, we, he, he was born in Italy, he was born in Calabria, and he, he came over to the U.S. when, when he was nine years old. Um, and we heard about his journey here, you know, quite often oh, yeah. growing up and, and how important it was to our family. You know, not only the details of his journey, but what the journey ultimately would mean for us. And, uh, you know, one part of the story was that the, the immigrants would call the Statue of Liberty the Mother of Exiles. Right. And so that's how we landed on Exile Brewing Company. That's that's cool. Thank you. Now, how did how did your family get from Italy to Des Moines? Was sure. that your grandfather? Yeah, it was my grandfather. So when he so his dad actually his father came to the U.S. initially before he was before born. the family did. Yeah, right. and, and before my my grandfather was even born, his father was in the U.S. And then when he went back to Italy, when his father died, he got caught there during World War One. And was forced to fight for the Italian army in World War One, and so he ended up staying there for a while. Met his wife, and then while when his wife got pregnant, he was like, you know, we got to do, we need to make a move here. So he moved. He moved to the U.S. while she was pregnant, and got a job on the railroad. And so the railroad moved him from the east to the Midwest eventually. 
you know, throughout that time he was he was just sending back money, and eventually he had enough to say, okay, now everybody come. Yeah, you guys can come on over. And so on their first trip over, my so it would have been my grandfather and then his mom and I think some other family tried to come over. My grandpa was putting he had stuck his head out the train win- window on the way over and got a, a cinder in his eye. Ooh. And so they stopped him in Naples and they said, you're not going. You have, it looks like you have pink eye. You look infectious right now. You're not going anywhere. So everybody left and he stayed there and he went back to his village and, and lived with some family in his village for, you know, another nine months or so. Until it cleared up. Until it cleared up. Yeah. And then he came back with a cousin or an aunt at that point. So he got separated from us. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a story. Yeah. But I think a lot of Americans forget that the sacrifices that our forefathers made oh, yeah. to mm-hmm. come to this country and for the opportunity that's here. Yeah. No, that was always, we, he always reminded us of that as we right. were growing up. And so. Uh, that's, that's a great story. Yeah, thanks. So let's talk about the brewery. Sure. All right. We're up here in your events room upstairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tell us about what, how big is the brewery, and, yeah. how, and you've got how many bars, and you have a great restaurant. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so I guess there's a lot of different ways to describe the size of a brewery, right? Right. So, we have so a, how, many, how many square feet have you got dedicated to brewing? Strictly to brewing, I would say that we probably have, let, now let's see here, 8,000. So... 6,000 here, ballpark there. I would say close to 20,000 square feet mm-hmm. is dedicated to, to the brewery, maybe a little bit more. Okay. And then we've got, you know, we've got the basement downstairs, which is a lot of storage. And, you know, there's a lot of brewery stuff down there. Sure. Uh, and then we have, um, you know, our, our annex, which is our more formal dining area. Right. Which is probably about 6,000 square feet. We have our beer hall and our beer garden, which... You know, that whole area is probably about 6,000 feet as well. Right. So it's a pretty big facility. Yeah, you've got a good-sized facility. Mm-hmm. How many barrels are you putting out? Last year we did just under 11,000 barrels. Okay. Yeah, just under 11,000. And this, 11, this is year number six we of production? We are coming up to year number six. You're coming, so you're only five years into yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. What's your production capacity at any point in time? That's right. Yeah, we think that an annual production capacity is going to be pretty close to thirty-five or 40,000 barrels. That's fantastic. So yes. you've got room to grow before you have to expand. Yeah, I, we haven't walked through the brewery yet, but um, I can show you the addition that we just put sure. on last year and the new tanks that well, we put I'd in there. I'd love to get some stuff. pictures because I know yeah. the listeners are going to want to see, you know. For sure. What's your distribution at the at right now? All over the state of Iowa, uh-huh. only in the state of Iowa. Only in the state of Iowa. Yeah, you got it. And your portfolio, I noticed you have, uh, what, five or six flagships? Yeah, we have Ruthie, our gold lager, our most popular beer by far. That's like our brand workhorse. Mm-hmm. Gigi is our dark lager. Not the most popular beer, but I think one of the better beers that we brew. It's I'll one, have to have one. Yeah, here. it's won a gold medal at the Great American Beer Festival. We have Hannah, that's our Bavarian-style wheat beer, good, you know, refreshing beer. I had beer. that with lunch. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> and then, gosh, what up, Zoltan is our session IPA. And then we have Beatnik Sour, which is our flagship sour beer. So those are our flagships. And then, yeah. you know, we have two different rotating brand series, the Hop Chronicles, which is different IPA pale ales, mostly focused on... Hot forward. Uh, yeah, hot forward, but hazy and, and you know, juicy IPAs right. and pale ales. 
And then we also have the Bohemian Fruit Review, which is sour beers with, with fruit, and we do four different ones of those each year. And right now you've got the pineapple. The pineapple Bohemian is on tap. Yeah, and then we do our one-and-done series. We make six different ones of those each year. So we make over 20 different unique beers a year. That's great. Yeah, and you got to do it. People are always asking you what's new, so it's good to have an answer for them. Right. Two years to get up and going. Yeah, about two and a half. Mm -hmm. All right, five years plus in production. Yep. What was the worst day for you personally here at Exile? Right. Yeah, I saw that question. That was a that's a that was a hard one. We've all had them. Yo, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's got to be the the worst days have got to be when you are working on a project and you have spent so much money on the project and you think you've spent all that you need to and then like you're putting the project together it's like all right here we are and then they let you know that oh well we're actually missing this piece of equipment right now and it's going to be this expensive and it's got a really long lead time as well and you get shut down that type of stuff doesn't usually happen anymore um, but it definitely happened a couple of times when we were initially opening and we didn't, you know, we were learning on the go is, uh, is what you call that. So that yeah. happens. Yes, it does. And it's, it's any, any, really partic- any one particular thing that yeah. you remember that just like you were pulling your hair out. Oh, I mean, gosh, there's been, there's been so many, like just, just initially in, in opening the, the brewery, you know, when we, we had all the the pumps wired and all that stuff and we're getting it going and then just like none of the pumps worked like what was going on they would not move like we were just trying to do a water brew and they would not move the water from one tank to another any sort of reasonable rate you know they were wired incorrectly like the electricians just wired them incorrectly and even as we brought them in hey what's going on here guys it's not what world's not follow the diagram type things and it's like all right let's bring somebody else in to have a look at the and they figured out but you know, just things like that are can yeah. be very defeating, but they don't get me down now nearly as much as they used to. I can understand. So, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. What's the best day? Yeah, yeah. I would say two days definitely. I mean, a lot of days stick out in my mind, but like the first batch of beer that we brewed, that was got it had to have been like one of the best feelings I've ever had in my life. It was it was just great leaving the brewery at like. You know, four o'clock in the morning, the batch was in the tank with the yeast, getting ready to go. The brew house worked. The pub was open. It's like, okay, we made it over the hump at this point, and that was incredible. What kind of beer was it? Uh, it was Hannah. It was our Bavarian wheat beer. Oh, well, yeah. that's what I had for one. And, uh, you know, another one that was comparable to that was the first day that we got distribution on our bottles, right. uh, bringing the bottling line uh, on, you know, bringing it online was very, very difficult, very challenging. You know, I'm sure other brewers would agree that packaging is one of the bigger challenges in the, in the game. And uh, we went through the process and, you know, finally got it going and you spend all that money and you hope that people are going to buy the beer and, you know, we were taking photos of it as it sat on the shelf, you know, fully stocked and everything. And then, you know, the next morning, distributors were sending photos of it depleted on the shelves. And that was just like, all right, you know, people are buying this. This is right. hopefully, you know, this seems like it's going to work out for us. So, yeah, yeah, those two days stick out. You were an overnight success that only took three years to get going. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
So you've been in this business now with considering getting the brewery up and going and production, so almost eight years. What's something in this industry that has really surprised you that you did not expect? I did not think that distribution was going to be as much of a challenge as it is. Distribution is very, very, it is like the challenge in, in craft beer, especially right now. Uh, we were, I was kind of under the impression that, you know, if I make it, it's just going to get out there. Or if we make it, it's just, you know, it's going to get out there. It's going to get everywhere. And people are going to start drinking it. It's not really like that. You really have to. Well, you are in Iowa, though. If if you build it, they will come. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why. And that's why I made that assumption was because of uh, you know Shoeless Joe and, yeah, and Field yeah. of Dreams. Um, but it it has been a lot more difficult than than we anticipated. It's we we've had a lot of success at it, but you know it's been because we we have really good distribution partners and we have really good sales staff that that props them up and, and, and makes good relationships with, with retailers as well. But it wasn't like, hey, we're available, everybody's starting to buy us. Yeah. No, it wasn't like that at all. We had to go into each account and sell them on it. I will say my interaction with your staff here and Aaron especially, mm-hmm. yeah. most helpful. Good. I mean, uh, it looks like, and I looked on your, on your uh, website, it looks like you assembled a really good team. Very important. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. It is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Anybody that's ever owned a small business and had to put a team together, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds cliche, but it's 100% the truth. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. true. You know, and I would say that to anybody out there who is thinking about getting into a business and you need to, you need to form a good team around you. Yeah. And it seems like you guys have done that here. Thank you. Yeah. What do you see as a challenge in the future of the industry? Again, I'll, I'll go back to distribution. It's, okay. That's going to continue, but also supply. You know, as, as these larger brewers are continuing to buy these other craft breweries, they're able to use them as, as a tool to... to control the supply chain a little bit more especially on hops yeah for sure and you know the the farmers have have planted a lot of hops at this point and i think a lot of uh craft brewers over um over contracted for hops and so we're starting to see an excess of hops so it's not it's not as big of a problem right now as it as it was when we initially opened there's a lot more stuff available so so hopefully that that doesn't end up coming to fruition, but it's just it's a little scary when you have that big of a company out there that does have interests in distributors and you know if what what my big fear is is like you know hey if our great distributors here in Iowa end up getting bought by other distributors from out of state that we don't have great relationships with that have better relationships with some of these other larger brands that's pretty that's a scary uh scenario playing out you know what can uh, the fans of exile brewing what can they look forward to coming down the line in the immediate future yeah in the immediate future i mean this friday i don't know when when you're going to be getting this thing Uh, out but yeah sure so this friday we have one of our new hop chronicle beers coming out we have a new hop chronicle beer coming out every other month 
And okay. Yeah, and like I said, that is a brand pretty much centered around those juicy and hazy IPAs. And those beers are absolutely best fresh. Right. So that's that's really worked out nicely doing that rotating series like that. It's almost like guaranteed way of ensuring freshness by having a new one once every two months. It's like built in, you know, rotation on the shelf essentially. Right. So we do those every other month. Oktoberfest is is going to be coming up pretty soon here. Do you guys do a celebration? Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You yep. brew a Marzen style lager? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we have we brewed that a while ago. We brewed that God, I think back in in March or, or April, and so that's been it's in good. the tank lagering. Yeah. Yep. So that that'll be coming up here uh, early August. Mm-hmm. And then I saw you have a musical festival. We do, yeah. The music fest is coming up August twenty fifth. Okay. So we're psyched Tell me about, about that. that. Yeah. So last year we did a big five year anniversary party. We shut down the street outside Exile, put up a big stage in the in the street, and had music all day long. We had Euphorchestra down here and and Dumps to Funk down here, and just had a blast. So we wanted to keep it going and. We don't just want to call it our anniversary every year, and we moved the date so that it wasn't on our anniversary. So we're going to hopefully be doing this thing every year going forward. So this year we have the Motet coming down, and uh, Kyle Hollingsworth Band are our big ones. But then we also have some local acts, uh, the Maytags, and uh, <laughs> yes, so the, the Maytags. The Maytags. Are, yep, they're a really popular local <laughs> band. And then uh, a nice, a good bluegrass band as well, uh, cool. Mr. Baber's Neighbors. So so you've really kind of built a community, a neighborhood around the brewery here. We, yeah, we're trying to. Yeah. yeah it's a constant, you've got to constantly build it. Sure, mm-hmm. sure, sure. Well, it looks like you've done a great job here. I'm Thanks. really glad that uh, this was suggested by my family members that I come Me here and talk to you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, it was just kind of a... Uh, a pleasant coincidence that you did the collab with uh, with four with hands, hands yeah. yeah. And uh, so anyway, I always like to end these interviews with a lightning round, five sure. questions, okay. right? Yep. And uh, your topic is famous exiles. Famous exiles. Yes. Okay. All, All right. right. I like it. Yeah. All right. So from the world of military leaders, Napoleon or Benedict Arnold? Oh, I'll take Napoleon. All right. From the world of science. Albert Einstein or Sigmund Freud? Einstein. Of course. From the world of revolutionaries, Karl Marx or Vladimir Lenin? Oh, do I have to pick one? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Skip that one. All right. From the world of literature, Voltaire or Oscar Wilde? Voltaire. Okay. And from the world of fiction, Conan the Barbarian or Huckleberry Finn? Huckleberry fan. There you go. Yeah. That's it. You got it right. That's right. It. Thanks, <laughs> thanks yeah. RJ. I really yeah. appreciate For you taking sure. the time. And now I'm ready to go get a beer. All right. Bye. Sounds good. Thank well, you. Thanks again to RJ and all of the staff there at Exile Brewing in downtown Des Moines. If you have a chance to get there and check out their brewery, it's beautiful. They've got a great looking place. They've got fantastic food and super, super beers. Uh, Call for dinner reservations, however, uh, 515-883-2337. They're open Tuesday through Thursday at 11 a.m. on Friday and Saturday at 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. We'll back that up. They're open Tuesday through Thursday, 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. and 21s and over 
after 10 p.m. And Friday and Saturday, 11 a.m. to 11 p.m., 21s and over after 11 p.m. Sunday, 11 a.m. to 9 p.m., and they are closed on Mondays. If you would like to learn more about Exile Brewing, you can check out their website. It's exilebrewing.com. Hey, ha, da, 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 ya, ha, hey! What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing? What's up, Bruce Travelers? Freelance journalist Tony Rehagen coming to you from St. Peter's, Missouri. Uh, tonight I'm Sands Alan Tapman as the chief is drinking his merry way across Iceland. Uh, cheers to him over there. Uh, I don't even know what time it is. I didn't look up the time change. Uh, but I am submitting this dispatch uh, remotely, and so uh, hopefully it will find him. Find him well. Uh, tonight, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about beer style, um, both in general and also in specifically uh, in a beer style that's kind of a sub-style that has kind of caught my caught my attention lately that I've kind of been obsessed with, just to be honest with it. Um, but it's interesting, just, it got me thinking about styles of beer, um, because what's interesting is that beer itself is like it's so simple, like at its simplest form. It's just four main ingredients, grains, hops, yeast, and water. and uh, But after that, they managed to make it so damn complicated. Um, you know, there are different kinds of hops, Citra, Cascade, Centennial. There are different types of malt. Uh, you can add stuff. You can add fruit. You can add raspberries. You can add nuts. You can add, you know, milk. You can age it in bourbon barrels or in wine barrels. You can add donuts or bull testicles, for Christ's sake. Uh, and just it just goes on from there. Um, and so you can kind of see the, the chaos. And anytime you go anywhere that, that you know, has a, has a good roll of uh, craft beer, you see that, you know, you see the madness and you try to, you try to navigate yourself through that madness. Um, and to kind of try to stem that tide, uh, every year the Brewers Association, that not-for-profit uh, trade group that I frequently cite here, uh, which, you know, tries to promote uh, the, the uh, independent and small craft brewery scene here in the U.S., um, they, every year they release their beer style guidelines. Um, there are literally, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of different styles from American pale ales to oyster stouts to lambics. And then there are sub styles, you know, styles within those styles. Um, the whole idea, you know, is to, you know, to, like I said, make sense of the chaos a little bit. Uh, and these, these guidelines that are released every year and they are, they're, they're poured over this they're, they're not taken lightly. Um, they're reviewed and revised annually by that Brewers Association, um, and they really they hold them up as kind of like the the commandments of of a good craft brewery um, as a resource for brewers and for beer judges and competition organizers as well. Um, you know, just kind of celebrate the diversity, but also kind of set up some some guidelines. As not fun as that sounds, sometimes you know it can be necessary. Uh, what was interesting and what caught uh, my eye uh, earlier about the 2018 guidelines is that they finally recognized uh, those juicy or hazy ale styles that we've been talking about so much. Specifically, uh, the uh, the juicy uh, or hazy IPA, also known as like the New England IPA or the West Coast hazy IPA. Um, we've been talking a little bit about that, the, like the Heady Topper from uh, up in Vermont. Uh, Sierra Nevada has a good hazy. Um, those are the ones that where the dry hops are added after fermentation to kind of lock in that juicy, hoppy flavor, um, and it makes the beer opaque and kind of, you know, hazy, literally. Um, but the big thing is it, it kind of takes the bitterness uh, off of the IPA. It still has a good hop bite to it, but the key trait of it is uh, that it kind of showcases the, the, the aroma and flavor of the hops. It can also, like, it really brings out the fruit essence of it as well. Um, and, yeah, and just taken away from the bitterness. 
Um, but what's cool is there's kind of from that has branched off a sub genre of beer that has really kind of caught my eye. Um, and it sounds a little weird at first, but it's the milkshake or smoothie IPA. I don't know if you've seen these around. Um, they can sound pretty decadent and they can be pretty decadent depending on what you're used to. Um, but uh, it is they, they they by appearance they they could look like a, a hazy IPA. Um, they're you know flat out opaque. Uh, just basically, uh, the difference is is that the sweetness comes from lactose, the unfermentable sugar common in 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 this style. Uh, you also get in kind of milk stouts and stuff like that. Um, and so it creates that kind of thick sweetness uh, with the milk sugar and combines it with the high level of hops. And what you get is this kind of thicker, you know, thicker, heavier beer that has that hoppy refreshiness of an IPA. Um, and I have, I've, I've kind of, like I said, I've been obsessed with them. So I had a chance to go out and buy three of them. Uh, I tried the wild berry smoothie from decadent, uh, brewery in, in Massachusetts. It is kind of what you would think of uh, with the wild berry smoothie. It has that real fruitiness at the end of it. Um, again, again, that thick mouth feel, the, the cloud catcher from Odell, uh, in Colorado, which is everywhere, um, is a much simpler, more hop forward. It's very straightforward, just like kind of a milky IPA that still puts that emphasis on the crispy hot finish. Um, and then I had this, uh, four hands here in St. Louis puts out the smooth operator, which is kind of a nice cross between those two where it has that nice hot bite. And then it kind of fades out to this kind of vanilla mango finish. Um, and it's really sweet, almost like a, it just almost kind of has that feel of like a, of like a creamsicle, but it, it, you know, it's really kind of refreshing and I, it can be a little bit thick for, for people who want the crisp pale lager, you know, who are used to regular IPAs too, that just want that kind of clear, crisp beer felt, uh, feel. But for guys like me who love stouts and porters who want to kind of branch out during the summer, even though summer is almost over, these milkshake uh, and smoothie IPAs really kind of offer a nice branch into that world, something that's refreshing but still has that kind of weight and that heft to it. Um, and they and and they do they 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 they, they provide that that punch, um, so uh, yeah. If you see if you're out and you see the the, the milkshake IPAs or the uh, the smoothie IPAs, uh, you can definitely you can definitely try them out and and see what you think. What's cool is that I mean, anytime you talk about beer styles though, um, you're gonna have people that just cry foul. And since it's not an officially recognized milkshake IPA and the smoothie IPAs are not officially recognized. There are some there are some stalwarts that will just lump them in with the hazy IPAs. And again, the difference is uh, from everybody that I've talked to is that the milkshake distinguishes itself by having that sweetness provided by lactose. That's it. That's what the hazy IPAs don't have uh, all the time. But I mean, there's some some people that will be like, no, that's just another branch off of hazy IPA. There's no reason to make that its own style. Even though if you try them, you're gonna you're gonna notice the difference for sure. Like, it's 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 another level of thickness and viscousness and uh, it's, but it's it, it just that mouth, that heavy body feel. And what's interesting is like, you know, and I, I get this all the time for friends. I, I got it from friends last night, uh, who, you know, kind of, you know, tease a little bit about, uh, the fancy beers and like, you're always drinking these fancy beers. And I brought out like six beers from my, my beer fridge out to this, you know, this cookout where everybody had, you know, bush light, which I still love the bush latte and, uh, you know, Coors Light and stuff like that. And I, you know, I took my, I took my ribbing and, and happily did it while I was drinking my, my chili IPA. But, um, 
you know, people are like, why, why the hell does it matter? Like, why the hell would you care about the style of beer? Why the hell? I mean, you're just, you're just being kind of a geek about it. And, and, and who cares? Like, if it tastes good, drink it. And there's a lot of validity to that argument. Trust me, I see the simplicity of it. Um, and but there, uh, beer styles matter in, in several ways, uh, and, and three ways that I kind of narrowed it down to. Um, and one of them is, yes, for the beer geek. And this is just what I find cool about craft beer uh, in general is like the more you know about it, the beer, the more you kind of kind of you can appreciate it. The more you know where a style's from, where it originates from, um, the techniques involved, the you know the the process involved, the history of the beer. That's everything to me. You know that that's that's why I like going traveling and like like Alan does with the with the with Brulissius is you go and you you try these things that are that are. Uh, you know, the evocative of a different time and a different place. And that's where you had that beer. And you're not going to have that, that beer in the same sense, in the same way anywhere else. Uh, I was having a conversation with my dad about this. Uh, he was over here working in my, in my basement, um, building my bathroom, which looks awesome. Uh, and he's good like that. But, uh, you know, my uncle who was helping him was big into like, he just likes the simple beer. And, and my dad made a comment today when he was referring to it, he was talking about you know, things are getting crazy with, with beer now. You know, things are getting so nuts. And I'm like, really, they're kind of getting natural. They're getting back to the way they used to be, where there were different styles and different varieties because the local brewers made the beer. Things have become so homogenous, like in the last, you know, few decades here in the States, that people forgot, you know, what a Marzen tastes like. I mean, and obviously, with this being America, people are going to take it way the hell overboard. They're going to give you the bull testicles oyster stout. <laughs> like, you're going to get that. You're going to get the totally overboard. And many people will think the milkshake and smoothie IPA, just by the name itself, is over the top. But that's what's cool about the craft beer scene. And that's, that's one reason why I think the style matters. Uh, two, it matters for awards. I mean, there's a reason they have all these awards. It's big for the industry. It's the celebration of beer. Um, people pay attention to that stuff. It helps sell beer. That's just the way it is. Um, it seems silly. Uh, and that, just like the first reason, uh, our, our beer geek reasons. If you're just a, you know, your your random drinker who doesn't give a crap, I can see why you wouldn't care. But the third reason the styles matter, I think, is the reason for the rest of us. You know, for the for everybody else who who out there drinking. And that is like like I alluded to at the beginning of the segment. It just matters because it it, it helps make sense of the chaos. You know what you like. You remember what you like. You had this. You had a. You first had a peanut butter milk stout. It's so and so. And so you're at another bar and you want to try this beer. And you're looking at these crazy shelves of choices or this crazy tap handle of choice. You know, this rows of tap handles. You know what you like and you can work from there. So you like this peanut butter milk stout. So maybe you'll like this peanut butter porter. Maybe you'll like this. You know, if you like a coffee stout, maybe you like this coffee Kolsch. You, you you know for yourself, um, and once you know, and once you're happy with that, then you know what beer styles really don't matter. Uh, but for the rest of you know, but it, but it helps like said, like I said, make sense of the chaos. And who knows, maybe uh, maybe next year we'll see the milkshake IPA be recognized by the Brewers Association. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, anyway, that's about all I had for y'all. Um, I'll see you guys next week, and hopefully uh, we'll we'll have another uh, issue of what's the rumpus. Thanks much, and uh, cheers. Cool. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers!
When we are young, friends are, like everything else, a matter of course. In the old days, we know what it means to have them. Edvard Grieg, Norwegian composer. Born 15th of June, 1843, Bergen, Norway. Died 4th September, 1907, Bergen, Norway.